and five. Fits perfectly. Great. Hey guys, I was wondering, do any of your parents ever say something like this? Do you know how much I love you? And then what do they do? This much. Oh, they hug you, yeah. But they try to show you how much they love you. They spread their arms as wide as they can, right? I wonder what would happen to So today, the passage that we're going to talk about here in Big Church is that we don't, we'll never know how wide and how high and how deep Jesus' love for us is. So let me pray for you guys as you leave. Lord God, thank you for these children. Thank you for their lives, for their families, for their growing in every way. But we pray that they are growing spiritually and that they would know from a young age your great love for them. Teach them through their class now, through Sunday school, through children's church, through their parents, and through reading the Bible on their own. Your love and your grace for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Semi-long. Semi-long. Well, good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Dave Dorst. I'm the associate pastor here. And many people know my wife and I have been traveling. We just got back from Europe for our 20th anniversary. You'll have to suffer through many uh, sermon illustrations about that for a while, probably. Um, I think my body is definitely still on Europe time. I'm hungry. It's about dinner time there. Uh, I've been waking up at 4 a.m., which has worked pretty well to take my parents to the airport at 5 a.m. or to work on a half-done sermon this morning. So I think we got it together. So if you've got your uh, sermon outline, you might want to pull that out. We live in a world that loves to keep score to quantify things, to compare things. We need to know where everything ranks. We need numbers. We need to know who's the best and where everyone falls in below them. So everything in life gets measured. Since the baseball playoffs just started, I'll start there. I mean, how many things get measured in baseball? And you thought Dr. Dave was the only one that talked about baseball. Um, but think about, I mean, you can go into the statistics deeply in baseball, right? You've got batting average, on-base percentage, uh, career home runs, uh, ERA, stolen bases, how well a guy hits against left-handed pitchers versus right-handed pitchers. I mean, there's no end. Now, I'm sure you could watch games and just sort of watch and see who scores more and who wins, but what fun is that, right? The, the true baseball fanatics want to know 
the numbers. They want to know everything. And how would I know that David Ortiz, big poppy of the Red Sox, is one of the greatest players of all time? Well, got to look at the numbers, right? He's hit over 540 career home runs, which is 17th on the all-time list, right? He set the Red Sox season home run number at 54. He's been a very vital contributor to three World Series. He's been an all-star 10 times. This is his last year. He's retiring after the season, and he's still putting up amazing numbers. 38 home runs, 127 RBIs, 315 batting average. I can prove to you that Ortiz is great because I can point to the numbers. And life outside of sports gets measured too, right? We can find out who the richest people are, the list where everybody ranks from Forbes magazine. We can find out the median income in every county, Loudoun County. The average test scores, graduation rates. We can find out uh, political polls, how the presidential candidates are doing. We have to have numbers on these things, right? We have to make basic comparisons to know who's ahead, who to admire, to understand, and to wrap our brains around them. But there are some things in life that can't be measured. Right? According to today's passage, there are two things that you can't measure in God. There are many, but this passage talks about His love and His power. There are no rankings. There's no percentages. There's no comparisons. Our usual way of sizing up people in situations don't work when it comes to understanding God who is vast, infinite, and immeasurable. So let's continue our series in Ephesians. Picking up where we left off, turn with me to Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So open and illuminate our minds that we may, we may better understand your word that our lives may be conformed to what you have, to what we've rightly understood, that in nothing we would be displeasing to you. 
Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Now this section of Ephesians is going to bring a close to the first half of the book, which is primarily theological. I hope you've been digging in since we started in early September because these have been wonderful chapters. And chapter 4 through 6 are going to be the practical application, second half of the book. Now, of course, there's theology throughout. There's application throughout. We can't be too rigid, but it's, it's pretty easy to see that there's coming a, a kind of a turn. And this is how most of Paul's letters are, right? Where he lays out the doctrine early, and then that doctrine gets applied to life. And it's not only a great pattern for his letters and his books, but those are great patterns for our lives. Because we need to see ourselves, our condition, our fallen condition, redeemed in Christ, in who God is and who, how he's interacted with us and acted on our behalf. And then that teaches you how to live. So these are the closing verses of some wonderful teaching, and it's a prayer that every member of the Trinity, the three persons of God, would work in the lives, in the hearts of the Ephesians. So taking the first three verses, we see a plea that the Holy Spirit's indwelling power would strengthen his people. Verses 14 through 16. Let me read that again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Now, Paul starts with, for this reason. And we can assume that he's talking about most of what's come before, right? That Christ has raised us who were dead in sin to life. That the Jews and the Gentiles have been radically brought into unity in one household. And that Paul has been called to explain the mystery of grace in Christ. And as Dr. Dave pointed out last week, Paul closed the last section with a request to the Ephesians not to lose heart. Because they saw him in prison and it would have been easy to despair, right? Paul says he's glad that he's suffering because of the glory of the message that he's proclaiming. Listen, if I were in prison, I know exactly what I'd pray for. Me. I would pray that I would get out, that I would be protected while I was in there, that anyone that had evil intentions against me would be stopped, that I wouldn't be lonely, miserable. I, I might pray for my fellow inmates, maybe my family, but I sure wouldn't be praying for you, I don't think. I wouldn't be praying for a bunch of Christians to go deeper in the Word. Maybe I would. But Paul did. And he prays that the Father would pour out his riches on them and that the Spirit would dwell in their inner being, giving them power. Because it's ultimately God working in their lives, in our lives, that changes us, that produces great fruit. 
You may be able to do a lot of things with your natural abilities on your own. You may be a smart person figuring things out. But spiritually speaking, you cannot accomplish anything without the Lord. Right? Jesus said pretty plainly, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the Holy Spirit is the hands-on agent that transforms us. Right? He's the one who turns our dead hearts into ones that are spiritually alive. The one who illuminates us in our understanding of spiritual things. He's the helper, the counselor. He is God living inside of us. Yesterday I was part of a discussion group that talked about how knowing the Holy Spirit is inside you is radically different and and more captivating and empowering than knowing that He's just there. That it makes all the difference in the world to know that the Spirit is there inside me for constant help rather than someone I have to go to, that I have to uh, recruit for help. And I, I thought of, for instance, when my daughter needs to walk into a dark room or an empty room or just something unfamiliar. She wants to hold my hand, right? She wants me to be there. I can't just say, well, I'll, I'll be thinking of you. Uh, let me know how it goes. And stay downstairs or wherever it is. No, she needs me to be there walking, holding her hand. That's the Spirit's presence in us. So Paul prays that they would know that power. And then he moves on and, and reminds us that God's love, that God's work in our life is intimately connected with his love for us. Remember back in chapter 1, there was a quick phrase, in love he predestined us. In other words, God kicked off the whole thing, the whole part of our spiritual lives in love. And everything continues surrounded by love because verses 17 through 19 teach us that Christ's immeasurable love is our foundation. Let me read that. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now Jed's already prayed for uh, our good friend, the pastor in Nassau, Bahamas, Bryn McPhail. And if you're a Facebook friend of his, he's he posted pictures of the damage in his yard. His family's safe. His church is safe. Doesn't know about all of his family members or uh, church members. But there was a huge tree that fell in his yard. And thankfully it fell just right so that it didn't crash through his house. Uh, but he posted another one of this uh, tiny mango tree that was still upright. The wind hadn't taken it. didn't have enough weight. Right? And I see that, I see a picture of being rooted and grounded in Christ's love in, those tr- in a tree that would survive a hurricane. And the bigger they are, I think the deeper 
their roots need to go. Our lives are like that. We need roots down deep. What's the greatest love you've ever known? Maybe it's your parents, your spouse, uh, someone else who's been exceptionally kind and giving to you throughout your life. Human relationships that are built on love where both people or one maybe give to one another is is a beautiful thing. There are just millions of songs and stories that have been written describing it. But take the greatest of those love stories. The story where someone gives of themselves sacrificially and showers the other person with continual love, kindness, and support. And then multiply that by 10, by 100, by 1,000, whatever. And you've just started to understand and get a picture of the love of Christ. Because no matter how deep our love for one another is in our human relationships, we, we still reach our limits, don't we? don't we? We get fed up. Where we step back, the other person isn't responding or rejected us and spurned us in some way. But however deep you've sunk in sin, however many times you've spurned His love, no matter how far you've wandered, Christ's love is still there for you. How do we know this? Because Christ came down. He took the form of a servant, took human flesh, gave Himself up on a cross in the ultimate act of love on our behalf for His people. More than anything else in the world, our hearts are starving to know that we are loved. Human beings are wired to crave love from others. More than accomplishments, more than possessions, we need to know that we're loved. And Paul says we need to understand the limitless love of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve it. Not at all. But Jesus loves His people. And those who know that are rooted. Life can throw awful things at them. Failure, pain, grief, persecution, whatever. And those rooted will stand. They will endure because their foundation is sure. Yeah, they'll be tested. It'll be difficult. But Christ's love is our sure foundation. So we see that Jesus' love fills us. Now the last section reminds us that God's immeasurable power works in and for us. Look at verses 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. There's a 
the word there in verse 20, there's a Greek word that they've translated in the ESV as far more abundantly. And the Greek word is hooper ek perisou, if you know any Greek. According to Jim Boyce, it's only found in the New Testament in this verse and in one other place, 1 Thessalonians 3. But it can also be translated exceedingly abundantly or infinitely more or immeasurably or exceedingly abundantly beyond. These are terms of hyperbole, right? Now, is Paul just getting carried away and overstating his case, exaggerating for effect? I don't think he was. No, Paul knows that everything about God is immensely huge. And he needs this extreme, mind-blowing word to describe what is indescribable. I've heard people criticize that song that we sing, many of you know, uh, the Laura Story song, Indescribable, because they say, well, that's not exactly right. God is partially describable. Just doesn't work as well singing it like that. And I understand what they're saying, because God is described throughout the scriptures. Um, but I lean, and I'm sympathetic towards Laura's words, and I think that they echo Paul's words a lot better. That indescribable, uncontainable, all-powerful, untamable, those are the words she uses. Yeah, we can partially describe and partially understand God's love and his power, but it's a pale understanding that needs to be expanded that will never really do it true justice. I don't know if you've sat around and thought from time to time. I, I, I think about everything that God knows. Have you done that? And I think that if I knew a person that was a language expert and could speak every language known to man, that would be amazing. I, it was very clear that I'm not a language person as we went through Germany and Switzerland and I didn't know whether to say bonjour or guten tag. I just, that's as far as I got. But that would be amazing. If, if there was a person who was a geography freak and just knew like every town and every village in the world, that would be pretty incredible. Or if I knew a person who really studied people and knew the names and faces of every person who lived in this country, just this country, I would be astounded. But God knows all those things and so much more. He knows everything that's ever happened. He knows every inch of not just this world, but every world. He not only knows every name and face of every person who's ever lived, he knows their entire experience. I can't even remember most of what's happened to me. And he knows everything. There's just no way to wrap our finite brains around the knowledge of God, is there? And his knowledge points to his power. That he created the world by just speaking it into existence. 
He can do all things. The only thing constraining him is his own plans and purposes. Do you want a God who will do just enough for you? Or do you want a God who does immeasurably more than you imagine? God did it in Paul's life, right? Paul was heading one way, wanting to be the strictest of Pharisees, defender of the true Jewish faith and stamping out the Christians. And Jesus stopped him cold in his tracks and reoriented him, gave him a new mission. The last person that they thought would have been preaching the gospel. And he still does that. Many of you know the story of Rosaria Butterfield. I know one of the the women's Bible study over the summer studied her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria was a college professor who taught and lived radical feminism and alternative lifestyles. She said she couldn't stand Christians. She thought they were wrong in every way. Until she met a pastor and his wife who invited her and her partner over for dinner and treated her with kindness and respect. And they began to have long conversations. And eventually, over many years, Rosaria began to visit their church and transform and eventually accepted the gospel message. And not only did she become a Christian, she married a pastor and studied theology. I mean, so much, I, her second book, I mean, I had to like read slowly and read parts over and look words up. I mean, it's deep. God did far more abundantly than anyone would have believed possible in Rosaria's life. So what do I want you to do with this? I want you to seize the truth of God's great love and his great power and be filled with it. Go back to verse 18. In the ESV it says that you may have the strength to comprehend. And then it goes on to understand Christ's love. But other translations don't use comprehend. They'll say understand or grasp. And I'm sorry, I'm going to use a second Greek word. I don't know if there's a limit or... I'm not trying to impress you. This just makes a really good point. Okay? And the word is katalambano. And I looked it up because it means a couple other things. It can mean to seize, to win, to attain, to overtake, to catch. And that makes it sound like a lot more effort to me, which is exciting because I'm kind of competitive. It makes it sound like we're playing an intense game that I need to put a lot of effort into. Now, I'm no Greek scholar or translator, and I'm sure they had their reasons for it, but I don't know. It just sounds very passive that we're sitting around until we understand and it dawns on us and we finally we comprehend. I love that. I'm glad I looked up those other ideas because I want to win. I want to seize it. It's now like a dare, like a challenge that no matter what's happening in your life, 
No matter how distant you feel from God, no matter how bored by life or or beat down you are from your circumstances, frustrated, disillusioned, I don't know where you are, but you can turn that around. You can strive and seize and ask God to give you strength to understand that Jesus loves you deeply. Work at it. Catch that vision and believe it. And now the temptation, of course, is to look soon for those overwhelming things that God's going to do in your life. And, and I can see someone saying, well, I went and prayed, and I was expecting a miracle from the Lord, and exceedingly abundantly, all those stuff you said. And after a couple weeks, nothing You know, I think that's like a farmer or a gardener that just throws seed down and and then it's going to rain and after it rains, he looks down and says, see, I knew this planting, watering thing wasn't going to work. There's no fruit or vegetables coming up. No, of course, that's not how God works. He could. But it's unlikely that God is going to be like a fast food order. We're going to have to strive for it. We're going to have to work in step with him, labor in prayer. We're going to have to seize things for a a long time. Eugene Peterson calls it a long obedience in the same direction. But we must, must be confident that God can do great things. Now there's, there's a little phrase at the end. To him be glory in the church. And here's my obligatory uh, travel story. As as Kath and I were traveling around Europe for the last two two weeks, we got to see a lot of great things. And uh, the main reason we went to Western Switzerland is because I love church history. And I knew it was an opportunity to visit some cool sites. And so we got to go to Grossmünster in Zurich, which is where Ulrich Zwingli and Heinrich Bullinger both uh, ministered. And Zwingli certainly was one of the towering figures in the Protestant Reformation. And so Grossmünster is the, the cathedral, the church where he preached. And then we went down and, and saw St. Peter's Cathedral in Geneva which still has John Calvin's chair. I would have sat in it, but they were watching. So it's got a picture next to it. Because that was where Calvin's main pulpit was. And these are impressive churches, even though they're not like the Catholic churches. There's not quite the gaudy artwork and uh, shrines and everything going on. But they're still massive beautiful cathedrals. And amazing things happened there hundreds of years ago, right? Powerful flames of revival, renewal were lit. People read the scriptures in their own language for the first time and devoured him. And the Reformation took hold. And today, those churches are tourist attractions. 
right? I think they both have Sunday services, but they're small. And it's nothing compared to what it once was. One might even say that God's glory has departed from those churches. And so I was very sad thinking about how far those centers of godly renewal had fallen throughout the centuries and how little of Europe is Christian. And yet how easily could God bring revival in Europe? And how much has he blessed other lands like South Korea, China, parts of Latin America? And of course I think of America and our church and how we can stay faithful to God in difficult times. And I'm reminded that God promises great things for individuals, certainly, but he also promises them for churches, for communities of believers, right? Wasn't Ephesians written to a community? And so I want us to remember and believe that God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or think in this church as well as in our lives. What would that look like? How will you be a part of it? I don't know. But we serve a God whose love we can never exhaust and who has the power to do all things. And he's waiting for us to strive with him and all those who believe that the Lord loves them greatly and that he has done and will do great things, said, Amen. Lord God, thank you for this scripture. Thank you for the book of Ephesians that, as we've seen, just lays out amazing theology that if we only had the book of Ephesians as a church, we'd still be doing pretty well. That we can study it deeply and learn new things every time we look. And thank you for Paul's passion for his people. May we share that passion for those in our church, those in our community, and those around us. And thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you work. You work in our lives, that the Holy Spirit fills us, strengthens us, accomplishes spiritual things through us. Lord, thank you that we can know the love of Christ, even as we can never go beyond it. It's too vast, too deep, too high. And once we are in Him, His love carries us through. God, thank You that You know our needs. You know the plans that You have for us. God, You know all things about us. And you can accomplish great things. So we pray that we would look for those great things. 
Lord, we've seen people's lives completely change, people that we would not think would ever become Christians. If you can do that, you can grow churches, you can bless families, you can heal marriages, you can bring children or parents into faith. Yeah, there are so many things. Give us the faith and the fortitude to continue to press towards those things, to seize them, to be expectant in full faith, knowing that you are a great God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.